Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Anna Lindner, your host, and today we are talking to Dr. Tanya Cateri Hernandez about her book, Racial Innocence. Tanya, thanks so much for being on today. It is a great pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Tanya is a is the Archibald M. Murray Professor of Law at Fordham University. She is an internationally recognized comparative race law expert and Fulbright scholar who has served as a law and public policy affairs fellow at Princeton University, a faculty fellow at the Institute for Research on Women at Rutgers University, a faculty fellow at the Fred T. Korematsu Center for Law and Equality, and as a scholar in residence at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black culture. Her work has been published in university law reviews like Cornell, Harvard, NYU, UC Berkeley, Yale, and news outlets like the New York Times. Her books include Racial Subordination in Latin America, The Role of the State, Customary Law, and the New Civil Rights Response, Brill Research Perspectives in Comparative Law, Racial Discrimination, Multiracials and Civil Rights, Mixed Race Stories of Discrimination, and, of course, Racial Innocence, Unmasking Latino Anti-Black Bias and the Struggle for Equality, which we will be discussing today. Um, So I actually wanted to start out with your epilogue, which I found to be the most poignant part of your book. Um, And that is because this book is very personal for you and also the many people that you were interviewing about often very painful experiences that they've had. Um, And the quote that really gut punched me was, no amount of Latino, we are racially harmonious, rainbow people rhetoric can ever change that I am a daughter, I am the daughter of an Afro-Puerto Rican mother almost given away because of her blackness. Um, The readers are going to have to look at the epilogue for the full story, but could you briefly talk about how you got from experiencing that in your family, in your personal life, to writing this very excellent book? Well, thank you so much for that. Um, The really accurate depiction of the crux of what was going on in the book. Um, The personal story uh, in the epilogue, and often people ask me, what did I put at the end instead of putting it at the beginning, um, is because I didn't want for a reader to think, oh, well, this is just about her, and it's only about her individual experiences of sort of as an Afro-Latina moving about within Latino communities um, and the broader United States and elsewhere, uh, as opposed to I am just one of many, and my story is no more important than anyone else's, uh, and mine is sort of brought in as almost a matter of equity and transparency. Uh, Equity in the sense that it's only fair to be able to share my story when I was asking so many other people to share their stories. You know, I I delve into people's personal memoirs, I interview people, um, and then I distill many stories from 
case law analysis, you know, anti-discrimination cases that have been filed in court. Um, and so the, the, that was sort of one of my primary um, sort of modes of thinking, why is this here? It's here because I wanted to be fair. Um, if you make yourself vulnerable, uh, why shouldn't I? Uh, and then the other um, was because I wanted for there to be full transparency that is sort of, as I say in the book, you know, I have skin in the game. It's not simply a scholarly uh, enterprise for me, though it is that. Um, it, it is much more and it's much deeper. Um, and then to kind of bring it all together, I think it is important to always remember that, um, you know, studying issues of racial discrimination and racial justice um, are not ones that anyone can ever say that they're completely um, neutral observers too. Right? No. However you're situated in the world, you are part of the world uh, and certainly part of racial um, problems, racial dynamics, etc. Um, and so I think it's really important for all authors, really, uh, to be very frank and honest about how they're entering into the space as researchers. And so that's sort of part of why that's there. Um, and then it also is uh, a way of explaining to the reader sort of why this, why now. Um, and, you know, I've been in this business now for, I don't know, <laughs> I'll just say decades um, in order not to, to completely just tell how many years I've, how old I am. Um, so I've been in the business for, de for decades doing, you know, issues of racial justice and anti-discrimination law. Um, but I finally came to this issue about Latinos in the United States because I was starting to see the ways in which many of the ways in which we deflect from introspection uh, about questions of race and racism uh, were starting to be manifested in anti-discrimination law and that judges and juries were, uh, as I like to say, drinking the Kool-Aid um, of Latino mythologies um, about how we are racially mixed people and thus impervious to racism uh, and that we're all one big mixed bag as opposed to acknowledging that, you know, some of us um, uh, may also be mixed, but we look on uh, ambiguously black right? uh, and that blackness matters um, both in how we're situated within Latino communities um, and how we navigate the world. Uh, and so I thought, wait a minute here, I'm starting to see sort of my personal experiences as an Afro-Latina, uh, you know, experiencing anti-blackness within Latino communities coming to the space in which I work, right? Uh, that is anti-discrimination law cases. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I I feel like I've been waiting for this book for several years because I've been studying, you know, blackness and African diaspora and Latinidad and trying to bring them together. And in some ways, this felt like a kind of a missing piece. I do look more at actual Latin America and Caribbean instead of the United States, but the process of the racialization that occurs dynamically throughout that region, through all the Americas, you know, tip of South America all the way up through North. Um, and that question, I'm so interested in positionality, which you, you talk about. Your role as a researcher, we are not objective, never have been and never will be. And then the introspection that has to come. Um, and that's how I kind of jumped into the the white supremacy piece of the questions of identity across the African and Latin diasporas because 
in a lot of ways, I, and I think you would agree, that is the root of the problem. Like that, the problem isn't blackness <laughs> or Latinidad. The problem is whiteness. Um, and that's been a huge part of my personal kind of journey as a white scholar who's been interested in this stuff for over a decade um, and has really dedicated, I've dedicated a lot of my life scholarly, personal to these issues, but it's like the white piece um, and that's going to be my bias coming out too, where I'm going to be like, what, what about whiteness? Where is it coming from? And why is it impacting blackness and Latinidad expressions in this way? So just so you know where I'm coming from, and now we know where you're coming from. Um, thanks so much for sharing that. And yes, this book is so timely. And I feel like that is the piece of discrimination and racial education that has been missing in the United States. Um, I'm very interested in language, and I'm sure you are too. So I wanted to talk briefly about the Latino, Latina, Latine, Latin, Aroba debate that has been happening and why you settled on Latino. Well, you know, I wanted the book to be multi-generational. You know, that I didn't want to speak only uh, to a sort of a younger audience, a more educated audience, uh, that which are the populations um, that are more uh, embracing of changing the O to something else, and the and the something else kind of varies uh, depending on what region of the country you're from, um, what your national origin is, all sort of off also influences this, um, as well as your own English or Spanish language uh, proficiency. And, and comfort level, right? So, you know, X, E, Arroga, we, um, it, it, there's a whole multitude of different offerings and all of which I think have value, right? Uh, so my uh, decision, and I make it very intentional and I um, disclose that um, in, in the early part of the of chapter one, or I should say in chapter one, is because I wanted for a reader of any generation to be able to recognize it. Um, whereas if I use one of the more modern um, options um, that, you know, valiantly and I think validly are trying to disrupt the gender binary within the Spanish language, um, the older generations are confused. Like my mom does not understand the X. Right? You know, it, it, she's got nothing against disrupting gender binary, but her Spanish language orientation doesn't understand that suffix because it's not a Spanish language one. Um, and we have a whole architecture of language that we need to get busy trying to figure out um, how to degender. Um, but in the meantime, um, I didn't want to lose readers in the. Um, battle um, <laughs> with regards to suffixes. And so I sort of put that out there that there are many ones and that this is not uh, an attempt to signal a choice, um, but rather a way to speak to multiple audiences all at once, regardless of what their own personal choices happen to be about how they self-identify and choose, uh, you know, language for doing so. Yeah. And I appreciated that because it's always, whenever I look at the title, I'm like, okay, Latino, what was the internal debate that went on when you were deciding? Because I, I have that debate all the time too. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then going to the central thrust of your book, it is that there is substantial evidence in case studies from legal cases, personal testimony, other places where data can be found that Latinos are and can be racist 
and I kind of hinted at this, you kind of hinted at this, but why why is that and what does that have to do with whiteness and racialization in Latin America and the Caribbean kind of along with or opposed to or all of the above the United States as well because you obviously focus on the United States. Well, I'm glad you asked me that question because oftentimes a reader is unfamiliar, um, you know, with Latino origin dynamics and what have you. Um, uh, presume, right, that I'm here to talk about in the book, you know, some new development of the ways in which Latinos have now embraced the U.S. Uh, and the U.S. systems of racial uh Dis, dis, uh, discrimination right? uh, 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 and rhetoric and what have you. Um, whereas, you know, that's certainly relevant, but it's not the impetus, right, um, that frames this book. Um, this book is, in some respects, a sequel <laughs> to the earlier book about Latin America itself. Um, and that book that you mentioned in the intro um, is Racial Subordination in Latin America. Uh, and the reason why I say this book is a sequel is because that earlier book sets the frame for understanding how anti-Blackness is part of the colonial project within Latin America and the Caribbean. It is not something sort of an, an import, right, uh, that disrupts what's going on in Latin America. No, it's kind of part of the fiber of Latin America. No North Americans involved is what I, I'm trying to explain. Right? Um, and so uh, many people, you know, don't have any cognizance of the ways in which what we think of as the story of slavery is a Latin American story more so than it is a U.S. story. I mean, that blows people's minds, right? But um, historians have shown the way in which, you know, looking at the slave trade records and what have you, that 90%, 90% of the transatlantic slave trade right, was destined for Latin America and the Caribbean. That's the broader Caribbean, both English and Spanish speaking and Dutch speaking, but nevertheless, huge numbers. Right? Um, whereas what we now call the United States, 3.5%. Right? You think about those demographic concentrations and distinctions, it lets people know, wait a minute, you know, blackness is not some foreign concept uh, to Latin America. If anything, it's sort of the, the seat of the African diaspora. Right? I mean, Brazil alone uh, is a space in which many have said has have more people of African descent um, second to Nigeria. Right? Uh, so that gives you an indicator right, of, the, of the deep concentrations and the legacies of slavery. Um, and so looking at this within the United States, Latinos don't come in, in other words, with a clean slate. Right? They're not entering the United States to be taught uh, racism. It is part and parcel of our cultural baggage. Um, you know, people want to acknowledge, you know, Latino culture uh, coming from Latin America and the Caribbean as being about our food and our dance and our music. Well, of course, certainly. If, but if you're going to recognize that as culture, then you have to understand that all parts of culture are coming in as well. And that includes racial attitudes and racial pathologies. Yeah, thanks so much for that very clear uh, explanation. Um, and, you know, like many people, I just, I didn't know that till college. And it was because I sought it out. And I was like, what's going on here? And I had a great advisor who was like, Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean, study it. Um, but yes, thank you for mentioning your other books. I felt like, oh, there could be multiple prequels to this book talking about those origins, which is what I work on. I work on uh, 
Spanish, the Spanish Caribbean specifically, Cuba, um, and how whiteness developed in the 19th century. So a little, a little while ago, and just the racial formations, which are so important. And then when you know you go to Miami and you have people who are, who are from Cuba and they say, "Oh yeah, Trump. We voted for Trump." Hundred percent made sense to me. And people are like, "Wait, what? Cubans aren't white." Um, and it, it just made perfect sense. So I was like, "I know what I know what the root of that is now." So um, thanks so much for that um, explanation. And that anti-black Latino racism is very insidious because people from that region. Um, which again was colonized, settled, and had the imperial kind of interventions, um, was con- controlled by mostly the Spanish, but obviously all of these other European powers. Um, and we obviously the Spanish is kind of overdetermined, and that's another issue because there's the Anglophone and the Francophone, Caribbean, et cetera. And all of that history kind of gets erased in in some ways in the in the migration of people from all of those regions all of those cultures into the united states and then homogenizes latino which you talk about and then that becomes the excuse i can't be racist because i'm latino how does that play out in the legal cases that you are an expert of um, it plays out in a number of different ways. Right? Um, it becomes almost uh, a concocted defense uh, to accusations of discrimination. Right? Um, and I should be clear that in the book, I'm looking at anti-Blackness in a big tent way. Right? That is to say, this book is not simply about Latino versus African-American racial interactions. Right? It's about Latino versus Afro-Latino uh, context, um, as well as other people from the African diaspora in Africa, you know, West Indians, etc. cetera. Uh, and so the way it sort of crops up is, an Afro-Latino or an African-American or the person, the diaspora within the United States will say, you know, these things happened to me that were a form of racial exclusion, um, an, a, a, you know, a racial disparity, racial harassment, all the ways in which anti-discrimination law seeks to make fairness. Right? Um, these things happened to me. Um, the person who happened to, to do these things uh, was Latino of what, of usually mysterious racial background, right? It's usually a Latino who says, my race is Latino, without acknowledging that they are white appearing uh, and certainly white embracing. But let's leave it to the side. Just accept it on on its face on the way in which the courts do it. So um, a Latino uh, is identified as the employer or the housing manager uh, or the restaurant um, uh, maitre d', right? The in enacting the alleged exclusion. And then what happens is some judges, I don't want to say all, right, but some judges and some juries, because this goes before both, um, look at that and they don't um, fully examine the facts, right? That is to say, they don't form an investigation um, because they are seemingly blocked in their minds by this idea of, oh, it wasn't an 
English-speaking Anglo-Saxon, right, who, white, who was the person being accused. Instead, it was a Latino. So, like, it's almost like cognitive dissonance. How can this possibly be? And so they don't even get to the next step of asking, oh, were the, was there a meritorious reason for the exclusion? Like, you know, in a job uh, situation would be like, you don't have the qualifications to apply for this job. That's a meritorious, right? Merit-based, a reason for exclusion, as opposed to you do have the qualifications, but we don't want any black people here of any ethnic origin. Um, and so the problem with these Latino, um, iterations, right. Of what I call racial innocence, you know, we're not the racists in the world. That's other people, particularly North Americans, not us. Uh, what we do is somehow more benign. Uh, what we do may be an a-, a racial attitude, but it's not racism because we don't have power, etc. Um, nevertheless, in spaces in which Latinos do have power, right, we have, you know, the unfortunate a side effect of our highly segregated society within the United States is that there are spaces that are predominantly Latino or otherwise people of color in which Latinos do have power over other Latinos or other people of color, and they can do some serious damage. Um, and so the exclusion from the workplace, the exclusion from um, housing markets, exclusion, the uh, disparity in treatment of Latino, uh, Afro-Latino and African-American children, for instance, within the educational context, these are all spaces in which if a judge and a jury believe the mythology on its face and don't ask any further questions. They use the, oh, I'm Latino, so I can't possibly be biased. I'm so innocent. I know nothing about racism. It's an off-ramp to investigating um, the discrimination claims. That means that there's an under-enforcement of anti-discrimination law that is highly problematic. Yeah, um, and that's so important. Um, When we look at... For example, um, the first chapter you talk about, or your first chapter, content chapter, so your second chapter altogether, talks about the bullying of and discrimination against usually Afro-Latino kids, but sometimes African-American kids. Um, It seems to be more virulent in some ways against the Afro-Latinos because they're, you know, being bullied in Spanish and they they probably speak Spanish and um, there's kind of this oh, they're the same racial group, but they're not kind of weird dissonance, like you said. Um, And how does the educational system respond to when this is happening? Or what is the lack of response, maybe in some cases? You know, it's interesting because that um, surprised me as the chapter that was the hardest to write. Um, And the reason why it was hardest to write, it just felt so painful to think about the ways in which, you know, discrimination is terrible no matter what. Uh, But when we think about discrimination uh, targeted against young people, I don't know if it's the parent at me speaking or, you know, um, it it was just heartbreaking to hear the stories of people, educators that I interviewed about Latino, Latina, uh, school teachers, school administrators, principals, and the like, who treat Afro-Latino and African-American children differently, you know, 
group kids all get into some kind of mischief as children will do and and there is a disparity in the way in which the afro latino african american children are perceived their problem they're troublemakers whereas the whiter appearing children or maybe let our latino as well are just you know innocent and uh you know made a simple mistake and, and so that's different disciplinary uh impositions you know this is how we see the school to prison pipeline come alive right when it's school teachers and so latino and latina school teachers are very much um implicated in this chapter and so it was almost harder to write than the physical violence uh, chapter where i go through the criminal justice system and latino law enforcement we can talk about that later if you like um but what I saw within the educational context um, is that when Latino school administrators have this power and they are viewed as being exempt from any accusations of discrimination, what um, sort of takes place is that there's an unfettered, almost like a license to deploy racial stereotypes and rely upon them because it's so normalized right, and not viewed as part of the American, meaning U.S. racial problem, that it gets reenacted right there in the uh, classroom and in the school building uh, without anyone else paying attention. And I just was struck by the language. You know, language is learned, obviously, and these these kids are using these racial epithets basically against other usually in Spanish uh, obviously there's <laughs> these instances of hap- that happening in English and the way that that's just completely taught and so embedded um, and the most kind of horrifying example too is of I think it was an 11 year old little black girl who was being bullied over a period of time and then the authorities got called and then they cited her <laughs> the victim, um, an 11 year old child, right? So, um, that, that's, that's anti-blackness. There's, there's no other explanation as to why a young child like that would be accused. And there might be some gender stuff too there, but, uh, being accused of doing something wrong when she's the victim. So, uh, yeah. Um, the next chapter switches into the workplace. And I was wondering if you wanted to talk about some of the trends that are particular to the workplace discrimination cases that you identified when looking at this large, large body of data. Well, one thing that was very interesting is that the experience of Afro-Latinos, uh, African-Americans and African diaspora often takes place within a very uh, racially hierarchical Latino context, right? Meaning they're allowed, often allowed into a workplace. You know, so you, it's not a, you need not apply whites only sign on the door to the workplace. So you're, they're allowed in, but they're allowed in within a racially informed um, positioning, 
Right. So, for instance, um, there was a case, uh, a Sears location um, in which uh, Afro Latinos were hired, but they were always hired to work in the warehouse doing the heavy lifting, no matter what their skill set, no matter how whether they wanted to be trained for other things, you know, to be in the, on the sales floor where they could earn commissions. Right? You know, this is a way to put food on the table. Right? This is critically important. Um, and instead, there are they were uh, trapped, if you will, within this one space that was viewed as the black space. And some indicators, I mean, it's quite obvious, but some of the indicators, you know, um, a judge fully understand what was going on here, um, that in Spanish, the place was called El Tribu, right? Meaning the tribe, meaning black tribe is, that was the space, right? Uh, In which the Afro-Latino workers were allowed to work. And it it was viewed as, that's the appropriate space. and so the workplace is not a neutral space, right? you know. Um, and when Latinos have power over one another, when they have power over African Americans, um, there is this deployment of a sense of, oh, in a racial hierarchy, the lighter you are, the higher up you go; the darker you are, the further down you should be. Right? Um, and just to circle back for a moment to tie this together with the earlier questions you were asking me about language, this was another way, another decision I had to make about language in the book, because so many of the cases, particularly in the workplace, but throughout, um, were uh, using uh, expletives about race, right, about blackness, both in English and in Spanish. And it was so frequent that each time I was typing it, you know, in order to be completely honest about sort of what the, the facts of the cases were, um, I felt like I was being traumatized. And I thought to myself, what must this be like for a reader to constantly have to encounter the N-word over and over again? Um, and so I made a decision um, to stop using it, uh, to instead, but not to say N-word, because I felt like that was, while, you know, perfectly appropriate for a polite conversation like the one we're having right here, um, that it in writing, it neutralizes the word too much. It's sort of, uh, and so what I did instead, and, you know, choices were made, so, you know, I have to live with them. Um, uh, I used the letter N and then did dashes for the rest of the letters and then edited it with an R so that it was understood uh, what was going on, um, but it wasn't a constant sort of re-traumatization for the reader. Um, and that was a, that's a word that gets tossed around quite a bit, um, in the, uh, workplaces in which Latinos, um, predominate. Right. And then the Spanish translations or renderings of those epithets in Spanish, and then whether or not the judge is, for example, Spanish speaking or not. Um, and then the kind of emotional weight, I think about that a lot of like the emotional weight of language, when you hear it, it's like, oh, this is a slur in Spanish, but it has no emotional effect on me because I'm an English-speaking judge. I don't know. I was thinking about that as well. Um, and that can be an issue, too, if you don't understand quite what that the implications of a word, for example, would be. Um, Although what was fascinating, and this is why I sort of take some time to like give a little space to discussing Latino judges 
as their own topic within the book. Um, because, you know, people, oh, okay, well, this is about needing to educate uh, U.S. Anglo uh, judges. And certainly racial literacy is an important sort of message uh, of a takeaway within the book. Um, but this is something that Latino judges need their racial literacy on as well, because we don't talk about racism and anti-Blackness with regards to the Latino community. Um, and the elites who are typically the ones who ascend to a judgeship, right, are not part and parcel of the group that's, groups that have been victimized, so they have an understanding of what all this means. And so there are, there were cases in which Latino judges, where the um, manifestation of anti-Blackness was to, for instance, call a grown man a boy, right? in English or in Spanish, right? There were Latino judges who were like, well, then that's really more about age discrimination and not race discrimination. You know, being purposely uh, uh, narrow, uh, having blinders on, excuse me, but purposely being um, wearing the uh, blinders to all the history within Latin America and the United States of the ways in which you dehumanize right, grown black men by calling them boys. That's about race. That's not about their age. Uh, and so it, it, all that to say that, um, you know, language about, you know, who's being called a boy um, is also part and parcel of the um, analysis as well. And that it's not just Anglo judges who don't understand these words in English or in Spanish, um, that it's Latino judges are part of the problem as well. Yeah, thanks for correcting that, because I was kind of peripherally thinking about this. But you said there was at least one judge who's Spanish speaking, who's Latino, who kind of dismissed like a slur. I think it was a racial slur specifically and was like, oh, that just means this. And they kind of explain it away. So yes, that racial innocence comes out that way. And you see that in all languages. I mean, I've always been aware kind of of language, but just in the last couple of years, it's like, how do we actually use language that is affirming in in, for all people and it's really hard because there are certain words that are like on the line where it's like it's kind of you know like saying someone got gypped referring to gypsies you know so I don't say that anymore but like it's just hard to like retrain yourself but I'm doing it obviously I have to like why would I not discomfort on my end that's negligible um but it's just so ingrained and so then and I wouldn't argue that Spanish is worse you know, because people are like, oh, we call them negrita, you know, the little black girl as a term of endearment. And I heard that when I was living in uh, Honduras and just it's there. But, you know, I wouldn't argue that English is any better. So, yes, people are being language apologists in both languages in as part of that racial uh, as part of the claiming of whiteness and the alignment with the white normative racial status quo that is upheld by language. Um, so yes, thank you for pointing that out because that is very kind of subtle, but very important that there are these Latino judges who are in Spanish being like dismissing the language. Ah, uh, it's heavy. Um, and then switching to, um, the next chapter about housing. So the most interesting thing to me is how there are kind of loopholes that Latino um, landlords, owners of whatever, 
people who are making decisions are able to actually circumvent some fair housing laws and how they're able to kind of um, very actively and clearly discriminate in a way that's not easy to detect. So I was wondering if you could talk about that. (laughs) Yes. So depending on where you live, right, um, your uh, fair housing law of your state and your city may look just like the federal. Um, And so where it all looks the same, the sameness of it includes this particular loophole. Um, In law school, we call it the Mrs. Murphy exception. As I described it, I should have renamed it the Mrs. Morales exception. Um, And basically what, what it refers to is the idea of if you are the homeowner, the landlord of a small building, right, you know, three units, four units or so, uh, and you live in one of the units, so the, and the rest of the floors you're renting out, you are not subject to the Fair Housing Act. Right? Um, why? Because here the idea is, well, there's a space of intimacy over which even if you have biased attitudes, you should be able to exercise them because they're your private sphere and space. You know, just like when you choose to who you date or you want to marry or whomever, you may do so based on some very biased notions, but they're personal to you. Uh, and the idea is you should have that autonomy. Um, we should respect your privacy. And here's the other level of it. The, uh, within the housing uh, context, the notion is, well, this is in some respects a small exception because the um, small homeowners don't control the market, the housing market. So we don't have to focus on them so much as the big landlords. But here's where this sort of starts to fall apart a bit within this Latino anti-Blackness context. For so many people of color and certainly immigrant people of color, the traditional housing market is not open to them. Um, This is also sort of another aspect of our highly segregated uh, country. And so uh, they need to be able to find a place to live from other Latinos or other people of color. And that often means renting a room in a basement, renting a room in the back of of the house. I'm meaning not necessarily the official <laughs> um, uh, housing units that even get counted as being part of the housing market. Um, and certainly, even if it's an official apartment, it's not one of these high rises. But if you look, you start to count up all these individual houses, this is, it's maybe it's not numerically significant, but it is certainly experientially significant to Latinos looking for housing. And certainly other people of color. Uh, And so here's another aspect in which the realities um, of how Latinos and and certainly other people of color uh, live and are constrained within our society are not really fully being encompassed within the understandings of how anti-discrimination laws should be enforced. Yeah, um, I was not aware of that. I mean, it doesn't surprise me given what I know about race and equality and economics in the United States, but um, I did not know those specific. And it's like you argue, it is quite significant, um, ultimately, given how many people there are who are doing this. And it's something we have to look at. Um, So thank you for sorting through all of those case studies. I'm sure that was a lot of data like that you had to 
slough through, which is not fun, <laughs> um, especially when you're reading a racial epithets in the middle of it. Um, and speaking of which, I was the chapter where you talk about criminal justice and the prison systems, and obviously criminal justice is kind of the larger umbrella of prisons and jails. Um, the the part I was most interested in is when you talk about the white supremacist groups among Latinos that form in those jails and systems and how they're, you know, neo-Nazis and Proud Boys and all of these groups. Um, could you talk briefly about that, like why they form, what they do, and kind of how that looks in that system? Well, you know, what, what um, is sometimes surprising to people um, is that the prison system right, is more, even more segregated than uh, c- civilian life, right? Be- in in um, life outside of prison systems. Uh, and so in, in those racial lines are policed by the inmates themselves uh, and with violence, right? Um, and so that if you disobey the rules of, you know, who sleeps where, who walks where, who recreates where, who do you talk to, um, then you will be dealt with um, if you disobey those rules. And here what's interesting is that Latinos, when the um, jails periodically uh, go through um, huge instances of racial violence, right? You know, there's huge throwdowns, right? Latinos have a choice to make, right? You know, uh, are they going to side with the whites, uh, the white supremacists, or are they going to side with the African Americans and the other uh, sort of darker hued um, m- members of the uh, prison system? And time and time again, these Latino prisoners align themselves with the white supremacists, right? Um, and you would think, well, why would they even be welcomed? Well, it's the same way you can explain how, um, for the longest time, the leader of the Proud Boys, the white supremacist group that rushed the Capitol um, in uh, January 6th, just two years ago, um, was itself a Cuban-American Enrique Tarrio, right? head of the Proud Boys, just recently indicted. Oh, I should say, you know, a sentence. Uh, and so the dynamics within the prison system matter in of themselves, but they also matter in the way in which they inform what happens out on the streets, right? Um, In California in particular, where there has been, um, unfortunately, a history of a lot of sort of racial targeting, sort of Latino gang members targeting African-Americans, not other African-American gang members, I mean, so it's not gang on gang violence, but African-American citizens, you know, somebody walking into a CVS to buy some soap, <laughs> somebody riding a scooter uh, and going to the local grocery store to pick up a soda. These African-Americans, right, um, are ones who've been targeted for racial violence, murder, et cetera, because they're viewing at, being viewed as problems, a problematic presence within any space that Latinos want to now claim. The prisons are relevant here because oftentimes part of the initiation practices of gang members are dictated by what uh, the prison members, excuse me, the gang members in prisons. It's sort of a fairly tightly woven ecosystem. Um, And so uh, 
if part of your initiation as being dictated by the people in prison is to go out and kill an African-American on the street, um, that is relevant then to our understanding of what's happening uh, in the world and how it is part of anti-Blackness and not just simply about gang violence. It's, it is about gangs, but it is not, can sort of be explained away in this way of like, oh, young people, gang on gang violence. This is not that. Yeah, and it's a reflection of these cementing of racial attitudes along these lines um, that is so evident. And again, if you know anything about Cubans' colonial and you know white supremacist history, you're like, oh yeah, the Cuban over there, um, leader of this hate group. It makes sense, unfortunately. Um, and for me, the one of the most poignant and kind of interesting chapters for me is the census chapter uh, at the very end of the book, um, because I'm very interested in racial categorization. And you explain that there is a huge problem with the census and how it's categorizing people and how people have been identifying. And then even just shifts in the last 10, 15 years over the categories that are available. Um, and that actually has large implications for justice concerns for people who are trying to organize, people who are trying to reallocate resources. Um, could you explain briefly what the issue is and how that's impacting life on the ground? Well, you know, Latinos and how they get counted um, is a thorn in the side of the U.S. Census Bureau. <laughs> um, and, and here's what they view as a problem and then what, what I think is problematic about how they uh, portend to solve it. Uh, so Latinos are not counted in the racial categories, black, white, Asian, etc., um, because there's an understanding that Latinos come with all those races within us as well. So um, to say that we're a race then it, uh, completely uh, overlooks how we are both an ethnic group and have racial distinctions within our ethnic group, such that there are Chinese Latino, African Latino, etc., white Latino. Uh, so there's two questions on the census, or at least there, there has been uh, since about 1980, right? One, are you of Hispanic origin? Yes or no? And Latinos sort of have a 100% compliance rate, uh, as the Census Bureau would say, in re responding to the question. They will answer the question and they uniformly say yes, right? except for, you know, a couple of cocos um, who don't want to. But in any case, right? except for them, people say, yes, I'm, I'm Hispanic origin. Um, the second question then is, okay, now tell us what is your racial identity? And since 2000, you can check all that apply, right? So you can say, I'm black and I'm white and I'm Asian. You can show your multiraciality, your mixed race identity by checking all that, that apply. Latinos don't do that though. Despite our rhetoric about how proud we are of being racially mixed, we don't check all the boxes. About 30% on an, every decennial census instead skip that and go straight to other, right? and in the other box, they write in their national origin. And so they'll typically say, oh, I'm Venezuelan, I'm Uruguayan, you know, uh, 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 I'm from Peru, right? as if that were a race. Right? Meaning they're expressing their self-identity. Okay, get it, noted. Right? But here, the Census Bureau, rather than sort of 
taking into account and acknowledging, and there are ways this can be done, um, that part of the racial innocence context is sort of say, oh, oh, I'm not of any race. Uh, That's you Americans. You're hung up on that. Um, They allow for this deflection. But the statisticians who run the Census Bureau are like, ah, apoplectic because they've got these, this is 30% rate of Latinos who are not complying right, with the key. And they want to be able to, you know, be able to code. And they can't code properly with these non-compliant Latinos. So this, the, the way they wish they want to fix this problem, and, wh- and why do we care about all this? Because in anti-discrimination law, when we're seeking to say, okay, how do we prove or f- investigate where there's been discrimination here? It's often important to be able to assess Oh, you're you're an employer. You have all these Latinos who live and work in the in this in this in in community who could be uh, qualified to do the job. It's called a janitor job, and a significant portion of them also are Afro Latino. If you want to prove that you have been discriminated against, it is helpful to be able to say there's tons of us here, and they never hire us. Right? This can't be just simply about random selection, and it's not about merit because any one of us are qualified to like pick up the broom and learn how to push it. Um, this is about race. Right. Things get problematic if the Census Bureau, and they've been trying to last two censuses and they want to go for it again, and there's a Latino head of the census so who seems to be in approval of this, so a lot of number of us are fighting back. But in any case, he, he and many want to take Latino out of the ethnic origin question and just cancel that and bring it together, can have it conflate with race so that the new census could possibly say black, white, Asian, Latino, as if it were own its racial category. And then what would that completely hide? It would hide an instance in which Latino employer hires other Latinos, but not Afro-Latinos. And the Latino would say, oh, I'm not discriminating. I hire Latinos but you wouldn't be able to see the racialization as well. The Census Bureau says, oh, well, you know, an Afro-Latino could check Black and could check Latino. But the problem, again, is another one of their uh, sort of almost like, again, they too are putting up some blinders in that in the United States, it it shouldn't be this way, but it is understood that Black equals African-American and that many Latinos won't check the black box, not because they don't view themselves as black, but because they think, oh, that must be for African-American. And certainly the way in which the Census Bureau rolled out the 2020 census only reinforced that because the one little modification they made is they added um, next to each race a set of countries to help better uh, uh, explain uh, for the respondent what was appropriate? So, you know, next to white, you know, they said, you know, you could be from the from Ireland, France, etc. Next to black, they said you could be from Nigeria, Ghana, etc. No Latin American countries were listed in any of those racial categories, as if to say, oh, not you don't 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 check over here, you all, right? Because these these race race boxes don't belong to you. So that's the Census Bureau sort of being intentionally obtuse, it seems, and reinforcing this dynamic. They simply want 
clean data, what they view as clean, that is, all Latinos checking Latino, and they want to throw them into the race boxes um, and not deal with any of these other kinds of permutations of how people identify. Now, the last thing I'll say about this is, you may say, oh, well, Professor Hernandez, that's so complicated. You know, how, what, what, what is the poor Census Bureau to do? There is a way to handle this. You could add in a simple additional question. One of my colleagues, great sociologist, Nancy Lopez, she says, why don't you ask a question about street race? Street race would simply ask the respondent, look, you may have a personal identity that's very complex. Okay, fine. But this other question is not about your personal identity. This other question is about your ascribed racial classification. That is to say, when you're on the street, what do people say they presume you are by some what you look like? Maybe you don't have a black identity, but do other people presume you're black when they see you? Right. That's important information because that's also about the way in which resources are being allocated based on what uh, you are presumed to look like. I mean, this is useful data for the enforcement of anti-discrimination law, which is what the Census Bureau of Racial Data is designed to do in the first place. It's not supposed to be a self-identification expression opportunity, um, but one could attend to both of these dynamics, people's desire to sort of express themselves, right? Um, and also getting concrete data about street race that would be helpful in the enforcement of anti-discrimination law. Wow. Well, that's when you know that race is a complex social construction. If you have people <laughs> who have to identify between their internal and their external um, sub just assumptions about their race. My goodness. Um, no, that's a great explanation and it helps a lot. Um, so fascinating to me, uh, personally. Um, is this project having an afterlife or are you working on something similar? Are you working on something completely different right now? Um, and tell us briefly kind of where you are with your research. Well, you know what, um, this has led to um, are lots of sort of community-based conversations right? um, and opportunities to uh, reach people also in short form, sort of, you know, writing about this, but not in the whole book, sort of in, in shorter essays and what have you. And w where this has led me to is that lots of people are really quite fascinated about the personal story, you know, that you asked me about, um, but also how I was able to sort of weave together a narrative that was coherent, that was both very grounded right, uh, in the social science, if you will, and also people's um, personal stories. Um, and so what for me that was an invitation by many of these you know, uh, conversations I've had um, is to help other people who would like to do something similar. Right? That is to say, it, my next project is an exploration of like, how do you write about race? How do you write, write race? little pun there, right? Um, <laughs> with both uh, spellings of the word right. Um, and so this is what I'm sort of uh, thinking through now as far as my next project is concerned. Um, you know, how can I be helpful in the mechanics of this, the politics, the ethics of it all? Um, and so I hope to be useful in that way. In addition, I'll say the subpart project is I'm trying to get a Spanish translation off the ground of the racial innocence books. So many people would like me to have it in Spanish. Um, and unfortunately, the way in which Spanish language public publishing happens is if you're not James Patterson, um, in which they think, oh, 
translating into Spanish will help us sell big in Latin America, you don't, you can't quite find someone. Um, there's not an attention right now. I'll just give this a little, my last plug. There's not an attention to, there are Spanish readers in the United States who have their own issues and interests that they'd like to read about that have nothing to do necessarily with what the Latin American reading public is looking for. Well, all of that sounds great. Uh, hopefully you find the publishers that will be compliant. <laughs> um, and thank you so much for this book. I just, it was just so powerful and so um easy to read. I mean, hard to read emotionally, but easy to read cognitively, I guess, if that makes sense. Um, it is a book that everyone will, should read. I, If I ever have the very fortunate circumstance to be teaching students about race again um, in the future, I will, this is going to be required reading. At least the last chapter and the epilogue will be required reading because, you know, they can't read, they don't want to read very much. But um this is great. Thank you so much for coming on and explaining all of this uh, in such easy terms to understand for hopefully everyone. Um, I really do look forward to reading your work. I'm going to read that racial subordination book next because that was like the prologue I was looking for, um, for this book. And thanks so much for talking to me today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.